everybody, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a really terrific Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today. I'm, I'm more excited about this podcast than I have been for a podcast in a while. Uh, we're being joined today by Dave Serrano. He's currently the head coach at Cal State Northridge. Um, I'm really excited to talk to Coach Serrano, who's arguably one of the biggest names in college baseball and someone who's been through so many so many things and has so much to teach all of us that are listening to this, no matter what your position is in baseball or if you're just a college baseball fan. I'm so excited about this one. I'm going to go through the, the bio for Coach Serrano before we jump into questions with him so you get to know uh, everything that, well, a lot, of, uh, a lot of what you need to know about him to see all that he's done if you're not familiar. He is a Cerritos, California native. He played collegiately at Cerritos College from 1983 through 1985 at a junior college, but he was there for three years. Uh, we'll get to, get to that probably in this podcast at some point. Um, his last year there, he turned himself into a junior college All-American. In 1986, he transferred to Cal State Fullerton and played one season there under the legendary head coach Augie Garrido. He then began his college coaching career in 1988. From 1988 through 1994, he was an assistant coach at Cerritos College. Uh, most of that time was spent under the legendary George Horton. Uh, while at Cerritos as a coach, the team won five conference championships and one state title. And the state junior college program or system in California, the, the junior college teams play one another, so a state title is equivalent to kind of like a national title, but they don't, they don't play any further than that. So they, they won it all in one of those seasons while he was at Cerritos. Then from 1995 through 1996, he was an assistant coach at Tennessee, University of Tennessee. They went to the NCAA tournament both of his seasons at Tennessee, and the 1995 team went to the College World Series for the first time at UT in, in 44 years. Then from 1997 through 2004, he was the pitching coach and recruiting coordinator back at Cal State Fullerton. While he was at Fullerton, that team won seven regionals. I'm sorry, went to seven regionals. They made four trips to the College World Series. The 2004 team won the national championship. And also in 2004, Coach Serrano was named the Baseball America Assistant Coach of the Year. From 2005 to 2007, he was the head coach at UC Irvine. In his three years there, the team went to two NCAA regionals. The 2007 team won 47 games. That was a school record. They advanced to the College World Series for the first time in school history. And also in 2007, Coach Serrano was named the Baseball America National Coach of the Year. The springs of 2008 through 2011, he was the head coach at Cal State Fullerton. That team went to a Super Regional in each of his first three seasons. They went to the College World Series in 2009. The 2010, uh, in 2010, in the summer of 2010, Coach Serrano was the pitching coach for the USA Baseball Collegiate National Team. Then in 2012, he was named the head coach at Tennessee. He was there from 2012, the spring of 2012, through the spring of 2017. In the summer of 2012, he was the head coach for the USA Baseball Collegiate National Team. He spent 2018 as the pitching coach at West Virginia University. In 2019, while working for Diamond Baseball Academy, he also spent that spring covering games and writing about games for Baseball America. He was hired to be the head coach at Cal State Northridge in June 2019. Overall, he has been Coach Serrano has been to the College World Series seven times in his coaching career. He's been to 16 NCAA regionals. 
Um, he has been in the NCAA tournament six times as a head coach. In 14 seasons as a collegiate head coach, he has compiled a record of 456 wins to 307 losses. And again, one of the biggest names uh, in college baseball, he has coached under some of the biggest names of all time in college baseball. Just a guy with an incredible uh, wealth of knowledge and experience. Coach Serrano, I cannot thank you enough uh, for choosing to be on the podcast with us today. Jeff, I want to thank you, and, and I'm really excited about being able to talk baseball with you over the next uh, hour or so and, and, and open up about a lot of things that I've been able to experience over uh, what I feel is a very blessed life of being involved with baseball and being able to lead young men to maybe not just championships, but to greater things in their lives. So thank you for having me on. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Absolutely, and I know that that's something that you and I have spoken about before, just um, that there's there's more to this than just winning games. You know, I like talking with coaches who win. I like picking their brains and finding out what makes them tick and, and what goes on behind the scenes, but I also like talking to coaches who just who really get it. Um, you know, I, I'm – I'm quite a bit younger than you, and there's a lot that I can learn from you, and I think there's a lot of a lot that everybody listening to this can learn. Um, but I'd like to kind of start at the beginning with this, Coach Serrano, and just kind of uncover an interesting nugget. I don't know how much you talk about this or how much you don't, but your time as a player at Cerritos College. Um, you spent three years there, which is unusual for a player at a junior college. Do you mind just kind of talking us through uh, your experience there? You, you told me before we started recording, and I think it's worth bringing up on, on the – while we're recording now, but just your time at Cerritos as a player. Well, I really think, Jeff, going back to that comment you just made, I think the reason why coaches are made sometimes is what their career was like. And I think that's why my investment into players is so – important to me because if it wasn't for the investment in coaches and me, I wouldn't have had the career in baseball. And so I'm very proud to talk about that story. I, um, I was a local product, as you said. I grew up in Cerritos, prepped at Cerritos High School, was on great teams in high school, was around great players and great teams. But I was I was under the, the Mendoza line, I should say, in regards to ability. I, um, I was a pitcher. That was my trade. Um, didn't throw hard, threw the ball over the plate a lot, just didn't throw hard, didn't have great arm strength. That's what, that's the ability I was given. Um, so I went to Strews College, which was a renowned, one of the best, at the time, one of the best junior colleges in the state of California or the country. We didn't compete across the country like you shared, but we were one of the best programs. That was one of the best programs. And I went there and I was recruiting. They knew who I was. Um, they were recruiting other players on our high school team. So they knew who I was when I played. And I went there, and um, I'm not ashamed to say, uh, the first year, Jeff, um, uh, I was buried. I was buried. Uh, Cerritos recruited a lot of players. I remember there was at least 60 or 70 players that were kept for the fall, and uh, I was at the bottom of the line. And I, I shared this with you before we went on. The only reason how the, the coaches knew my name was because going back to I was a strike thrower and um, I threw batting practice every day my first year 
And when I say batting practice, back in those days, it wasn't the platform at 45 feet with the L screen in front. It was batting practice from the rubber with my cleats on competitively every single day. And uh, now I wouldn't throw 100 pitches. I'd throw 30 to 40 pitches. But I had that kind of resiliency in my arm and throwing strikes. I was a good BP thrower. And that's probably why I wasn't performing because that's what I was doing in the game too. I was kind of a BP thrower. And um, had to learn the hard way. Had to grow. Had to get better. Um, and that was kind of my mindset. I'll never forget this because then I went to my redshirt freshman year, uh, the next year, where I was able to play. The redshirt uh, was lifted, and I pitched one inning. And uh, I'll never forget this story. This is a great story to share with with uh, parents, coaches, and players that are listening. Is I remember coming home my freshman year, and um, as parents do because they have so much love for you, I remember my mom saying, you know, Dave, the coaches must just not like you there. There must be a reason why you're not playing. And I immediately turned my mom's mindset around and said, no, mom, that isn't true. They do like me. I'm just not good enough, and I have to get better. And I wish there would be more of that that went on within the player players nowadays' minds that I've got to get better. I don't need to make excuses why someone isn't playing me and why I'm not playing. I have to get better. And I did that. Um, I ended up making an arm angle change. I was an over-the-top or high three-quarter guy that threw about 83 miles an hour, 84. And um, because growing up, and I speak, I'm making it very wordy, but I was one of those weird kids that threw a tennis ball, a wiffle ball, or a racquetball against my garage every single day. And I would mimic being every single guy in Major League Baseball. So I had every different arm angle you could throw. I could be Kent to Colby. I could be Don Sutton. I could be Dennis Eckersley. Names from way in the past. Well, one day down in the bullpen, my, my sophomore year, uh, after I redshirted and only thrown one inning my, my, my redshirt freshman year, it was deep in the fall, and I wasn't pitching again. I wasn't pitching in ball ball. And I asked our pitching coach at the time, a guy named Jay Ortega, I said, we watched me throw some pitches from underneath, and I threw some pitches from underneath, and his eyes opened up. And he says, hey, hold on real quick. He went down and got Coach Horton, who was the head coach, and had Coach Horton come down and said, watch Dave throw. And I had a great sinker from there, had a great slider from there. And when I say great, that's probably over exaggerated. It was quality. It was much better than it was over the top. Well, I ended up getting the ball more that fall, which led to, um, in 1985, my sophomore year, um, ended up pitching as a starting pitcher and as a relief guy. And ended up going 12-1 and that year with, I think, five saves. I'm not a stat guy. I just remember that because it's the best year of my career. And kind of just resurrected my career. And what you didn't say in the bio, and that was probably my fault for not saying that, is we won the state championship that year, too. So I wanted as a player and a coach at Sears College. And it was a great team. It was a superior team. I think out of all of us, if we had if we had 20 sophomores on our team, I think all 20 got Division One scholarships. So it wasn't just about me having a good year. I was surrounded by good people. And I think that's kind of led into my coaching career that that has showed me it isn't about you. It's about putting good people around you that are going to make you look better. And that's why my mentality as a coach is you never quit on somebody. You can always, someone can always develop to get better if they have the right mindset to be able to get better. So 
I went from a VP guy that was on the list every day, not getting his name on the list as a player to play, to a guy that was one of the key guys on that pitching staff that helped that team win a state championship in 1985, which led to a scholarship to Cal State Fullerton after my redshirt sophomore year. And I'll never forget this. My high school coach, Vern Bronk, out of all respect to him, coming out of high school, he told me, he said, Dave, at the best, you're probably a Division three player. And that didn't that didn't make me mad. That motivated me. Not that there's anything wrong with Division three baseball at all, but it motivated me because my goal was my goal was to play in the major leagues one day, but playing Division one baseball at Cal State Fullerton was my major leagues in my mind. That's an amazing story, and I don't know how many people would have come back for that third year after a year in college for two years. You redshirt once, you you throw one inning the next year. I mean, I don't know how many people would have even been a shot the third year. Well, you know, let me let me add to that a little bit. Um, that sophomore year, because um, we had a lot of talent in Cerritos. We had a lot of talent. I was able to recognize that. And, and I saw my, my days dwindling, and I actually thought um, for a brief time of maybe going somewhere else. And I actually, for the summer, that summer, going into my sophomore year, I went and played a summer ball with Fullerton Junior College, which wasn't very far from my house, and went there for the summer and came back and told my parents, um, I made a mistake. Um, I'm not around the same kind of people that I want to be around that, that, are, that want to play at the top level, want to win a championship. And I went back almost on my hands and knees and asked Coach Horton, would you give me an opportunity to come back? And because I wanted to be on, be around my friends and the people that have the same kind of work ethic as me. And um, going into November of that fall, I kind of thought I made a bad mistake because I still wasn't pitching until I made the arm change. But it was the best decision I've ever made to go back kind of home, quote unquote, and be around the people that, that I'd kind of grown up with over those three years. And we accomplished great things together. You you had such an, an incredible amount of success as or you've had you're still having an incredible amount of success as a head coach. Do you ever look at players now that you're coaching and and kind of see yourself like a guy that that really is not as talented as his teammates, but somebody who really wants to be good, someone who really puts the time and effort in. And of course, there there are you know thousands and thousands of players out there who aren't very good and they don't they don't work especially hard so they're not not guys that you would necessarily want on your team as the on a 35 man roster as your 33rd 34 35th guy but there are a lot of guys out there that do do you ever see yourself and guys that you've recruited and, and and coached over the years and just think like I think it's worth sticking it out with this guy and I think by junior senior year he's going to be able to give us something and maybe that's panned out at some point. Have you have you seen that? Have you have you recognized that in some other players you've coached? Yes, I do. That's a great question and I do. And let me go back. That's one of the reasons why I don't like the the um the list that we have the the uh, squad list that we have to have the roster limit. Because I say this and I share this all the time, if there was a roster limit when I was growing up going through junior college, I wouldn't have made the team and I wouldn't have got an opportunity to play on a state championship team. I wouldn't have been able to coach a state championship team. I wouldn't have been able to be part of a coaching staff of a national championship team. And all the things that I've been able to accomplish in my career would have been shortened because I wouldn't have made the team. But I, you know, it's funny, 
you ask that question because a lot of the players I recruit are way better than I ever was, but it's, it's work ethic, and it's, it's, that's the biggest thing I look at is the work ethic and, uh, and what you bring to the table. And I'm, I'm a firm believer, Jeff, is that, and I, say, I share this with our team, is that whether you're getting out of it what you want at that time, you need to bring something to the table to be part of the team. And what I mean by part of the team is like being part of the family. I think everybody needs that in their life to be able to succeed, either be part of a family or be part of a team. And, and I share that with the parents of the, the players that I coach is that, is that a lot of people don't recognize that when they're going through it, but they'll recognize it 10 or 20 years down the line or maybe farther down the line of how important it was to go through the things they went through as a member of that team. I think it leads to a lot of more successful things in your life, raising a family, being a husband, being part of a family, being part of a workforce. I think that all kind of goes together with being part of a team, and I see that a lot. But I do recognize that in kids. And if, if a kid has work ethic, even if he doesn't have the ability, if he has the work ethic, he could bring something to the table, and who knows what he'll end up being. And that's what I think is so special about baseball, maybe more than any other sport, is it isn't always the most talented guys. I've, I've coached many guys that don't have, didn't have all the talent, but they had the heart and the desire and the work ethic, which allowed them to be good. And in football and basketball, Sometimes it's about ability. Sometimes it's about size and strength. That's where baseball is so different than those two other sports, is that size and strength doesn't always make the good, complete player. Baseball is also a funny sport in that I've seen in the, the years that I've coached that teams that make a deep run in the playoffs, even if it's your conference tournament or uh, teams that advance beyond that, um, and a lot of times major league teams are the same way, but you'll have a guy that did not play much of a role throughout the season that will all of a sudden because of of injury or because someone else wasn't playing well, all of a sudden gets a chance. And then all of a sudden, you know, that 56 game season in the first 50 games, they, they weren't a part of it. They, you know, weren't, didn't have much of a role in the last couple games of the season and through the postseason, someone has a big role and steps up and, and plays a big part in what happens in the postseason. And I think that, that baseball is a game – I've always believed that baseball is a game that rewards you, but it doesn't reward you right away. In this way, I, I believe that baseball reflects your life. Uh, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a hitter, for example, and you're kind of slumping and, and, you're not, and there's, there's some things you're not doing very well or not doing right, when you make the adjustment, you're not going to go out the next day and get three hits. Baseball's not that way. Like, it's going to take some time. Uh, baseball's too fair of a game for you to make a change and see – results the next day it's going to take some time until you see the results and until you sort of get um what you've been working for and i think it's it's just a game that will reward you if you stick it out most of the time in one way or another you're you're going to get out of it what you put into it at some point if you just stick with it i agree with you and and i have a saying that i say all the time the game knows and uh, I'm sure you've heard that along the way sometimes. And right when you were talking about that, it reflected back to 2004, the national championship season. We got the losers bracket at home in our region, our super regional, or our regional, and our, actually it was a super regional then. And um, we had to, uh, actually it was the regional. I'm sorry, before the super regional, and we were playing. Uh, we were playing, We had to beat Pepperdine twice, and we were running low on pitching because we were coming out of the losers bracket. There's a left-handed pitcher named Scott Sarver, who had been uh, was in his first year, a transfer from Fullerton Junior College, and he had worked hard all year. 
didn't have a great year for us with the spotty left-handed pitch. He was a left-handed pitcher, left-handed situational guy, and struggled his way, but had continued to work hard and stay with himself. But we had to go to him. We had to go to him, and he had to start the game against Pepperdine. And he ended up he ended up putting us on his back and, and carrying us, helping us get through that regional, beat Pepperdine, and advance the Super Regional to eventually beat Arizona State to get to Omaha. And there's a lot of superstars on that team. Jason Windsor, who carried us through Omaha, and Kurt Suzuki. But it was Scott Sarver, the guy that was probably number eight or nine on the pitching staff for the majority of the year, that because he stayed with himself, he didn't get down on himself. He wasn't pointing the fingers at other people and blaming other people why he wasn't succeeding. He got the ball in the biggest moment when our season could have been ended on a very good team and got the ball and went seven or eight complete innings to allow us to beat Pepperdine. So it's stories like that that you're down. Just echoing what you're saying, you're exactly right. The game knows and will reward, not always, but some most of the time will reward those people that continue to work hard. I like that a lot. The game knows, and the, and the game does. And I think that anybody that plays or coaches for a long time has got some sort of saying like that that they, they tell their team and they tell their guys, and um, it's certainly very, very true. I want to go back to something else you said a little while ago, Coach Serrano, just about um, you wish there was more of something that you experienced while you were playing at Cerritos, of just someone looking in the mirror and saying, the reason I'm not playing is because I'm not good enough. It's not because of the coaches don't like me or it's not because of something political. And uh, so after I coached in college, I coached high school ball for one year. It wasn't uh, necessarily my cup of tea, but I, I tried it for a year and I had a meeting with parents and players before the season started and just sort of told them that I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what your last name is. It doesn't matter to me how much money you've donated to the program or what you've done in the past or, you know, what your standing is in the community. I'm going to play the guys that I think are going to help me win. And there's going to be, there's no reason that if you're not playing or if your son's not playing, there's no reason for that, except I don't believe that you or your son can help the team. And and that's something I want you to realize before we even get into this. I don't, I don't want the politics uh, swirling around this team. And I think there's a lot of, um, it's not something that, that is done a lot right now you've been coaching since 1988 is that something that you think has changed over time or is that something that you saw you've seen you know for the last several decades that that players have a hard time when they're not playing players have a hard time looking in the mirror and saying that it's because of me it's because of something i've done or because i'm just i'm just not good enough is that something that's changed over time i think it has jeff sadly it's
exactly on time to a Zoom call. Now, look back, Jeff, to when you played, and I know when I played, if I was late to anything that my coaches were involved in, I'd be scared to death that I wasn't going to get another chance ever before. Kids don't look at it that way anymore. They just think, well, it's, you know, I'm late, no big deal, I'm a good player, I'm still going to. And I shared with my team, I said, you know, if we're 100% on Zoom calls or 100% showing up to practice or 100% showing up to 6 a.m. weights when we start to do that again, don't pat yourself on the back. You're not doing a great job. You're just doing your job. You're doing the job you're supposed to do. That guy that shows up every day to work at 6 a.m. in the morning and works until 3 in the afternoon, he, he doesn't expect a raise at the end of the year for showing up on time. That's just doing his job. And I don't think people don't keep it in perspective like that. And so to answer your question, I, I, I have seen that kind of get lost a little bit because it's, it's become, and, I, and I'm not bashing travel ball, but I know when travel ball started about 15 to 20 years ago when it really started getting heavy in the, in the sports, I think it, it stopped being about the team and it became more about showcasing, showcasing yourself. And it wasn't what the end result was of the game because at the end of the day, the win and loss of the team is more important than what you did that day. And um, so I think that's where it kind of got lost is that we play travel ball to be seen to get scholarships or sign instead of what's most important for the team that day. And I think that's where kids have gotten confused by it. And that's a two-edged sword because I, it's hard to – it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what happened there because at some point college coaches stopped going out to high school games. You're right. And, and so it's become necessary to, to play travel baseball for anybody to see you. And then you play travel ball and everybody you're paying to play on that team. So as a parent, it's, it's hard as a coach, you can see why parents will get upset if so-and-so is not playing because it's not high school ball where it's just the best player. Like I, I, paid a lot of money to be here i'm doing a lot of traveling like you got to give, give my kid a shot to get in front of somebody so travel ball is such a weird thing to me and it's it's necessary on the recruiting side but it's i just think there's a lot of bad coming out of it of course i think rob manfred thinks that travel ball is amazing because he's trying to turn major league baseball into travel baseball now um which is another podcast in general um but i just i think that it's it's hard to know exactly what came first but i think you're right somewhere along the way um, some priorities have, have changed and been lost. Now, how do you deal with that when kids get on campus? I mean, the, the travel baseball world tells the individual player that that individual is the most important thing here. But we all know that a good college, a good team of any, not, not just a good college team, but a, a good college team, a good pro team, uh, it's a bunch of, a bunch of guys who are, who are fighting for the greater good of the team how how do you make that transition when guys get on campus, and how long does that take? Or 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 do you have to recruit players that you have to be very careful to recruit players who already take that mentality, and and try very hard to avoid the player who does think that this it's it's about me, it's not about the team. I mean, how how do you go about you know, just just dealing with that and coping with that being kind of what travel baseball is about right now? Well, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy task. And, and in the recruiting process, because it's gotten so escalated now that you don't have a lot of time to get to know the player like you once did years ago when I first started. 
Uh, before, you would talk to a guy for months before a decision was ever made. Now, you talk to a guy a couple times and they're making decisions. So it, it does make it very difficult. I learned something years ago from Coach Wally Kincaid, who was a legendary coach at, at Cerritos Junior College. And he talked about the three players. There's the one player, the number one player, that he's all about himself. As a coach, those are easy guys to figure out. And you could, those are easy guys to figure out right there. The number two guy is the team. That's the one that destroys the team. That's the one that, to your face, acts like he's all about the team. But behind the scenes, he's really all about himself. Okay? Those are the team destroyers right there. The number three player is the player that's all about the team. Those are the guys that are easy to coach. Okay? It's the one and threes that you want. The guy that's all about himself, you can maybe change him a little bit. The three guy, you don't need to change him much. You just got to get him better. The two guy is the one which we see a lot now in recruiting that comes across in the recruiting process. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I want to come there. I want to help that program be better. But in reality, always thinking about it is the light at the end of the tunnel. I want to go through there as fast as I can because I want to get to professional baseball. So it is a very tough task to do. Um, and I'll, I'll say this: one of the things that every stop I've been at, Jeff, is yes, we involve the travel ball coach in the recruiting process. They're the ones that are a lot of times giving us the names and the info. But we make it a point as a coaching staff to talk to the high school coach because at the end of the day, he's the one that knows the individual on the inside and the outside better than anyone else. He's the one that sees him on campus. He's the one that sees him in class. He's the one that sees him at practice every day and his mannerisms. And he's going to have a lot more information than the travel ball coach that's trying to keep everyone happy and is collecting the money. Now, again, I'm not bashing travel baseball. It's been great for college baseball and recruiting. But they don't know the players as well as the high school coach. So we make it a point to include the high school coach, which I know high school coaches appreciate that because they've been kind of pushed to the side now and they're not involved as much in the recruiting process. No question. The, the year that I did coach, and even now I, I'm an associate scout, so I go out and see high school games when there is high school baseball played up here, which there wasn't this year. But I go out and see games, and, and it's rare to see a college coach out to see high school baseball games. And um, I know that travel ball is great in, in a lot of ways. You get to see a lot of pitchers on a particular day. But to me, there's nothing like – nothing can take the place of watching a guy compete for his team when you're actually trying to win in, in, a, in a high school game, and especially for a pitcher that has to go deep in a game. Um, you know, and just – I guess just to see – a lot of times in, in travel baseball, I feel that you you don't often see, like, someone else's best against your best, if that makes sense. Like, you're not going to see someone's number one a lot, someone's number one pitcher against a hitter, because you're going to see every inning or two, you're going to see a new pitcher out there. And uh, there, there are definitely some things that are lost there. Um, why to go back to another thing that you said earlier, and I'll probably keep doing this because you're dropping a lot of nuggets on me that that I'd like to I like to kind of expand on. Um, you were talking about your players now being on time for a Zoom call and, and just why things like that are important. Another thing that I feel that maybe is not much of a priority as it used to be, at least before you set foot on campus, and that a lot of younger guys just in general have trouble sort of wrapping their mind around why these little things are important, why it's important to be on time when the coach says be here at this particular time, you know, why it's not okay to show up even a minute or two late, um, why 
wearing your uniform like you're asked to wear it every day is important, like tucking your shirt in, wearing a belt, you know, things that, like, as a, as a high school coach, when I told all of our players that we needed to dress particular ways, they looked at me like I had lobsters coming out of my ears. And, um, you know, for practice, they never had – I didn't make them do anything special, but they had to wear baseball pants with a belt. They had to wear baseball socks every day to practice. Like, I didn't – I can't stand the guys that wear the baseball pants with, like, the ankle socks. And there were just certain things we wanted to do that I thought were important. But I'd like to hear it from your – your perspective just why are those things important why are they important enough that you're going to pay attention to them and you're going to make sure that they're done why is that important in uh as a as a division one head baseball coach well i'm going to just use your words i don't think there's big things there's a lot of little things and a lot of little things add up to big things and i just had this conversation the other day with one of our individuals that was struggling with doing accountability things and getting things that he's supposed to be that he can control done and I said how can my me or my coaching staff or any of your teammates rely on you for anything you're not doing these little things right if you can't get on a zoom call on time how are you going to tow the rubber in the seventh inning with a runner on second base and be able to execute pitches and know the signs and know the looks and picks at second base so all those little things in a lot that's the, probably the hardest thing in coaching to translate to your players is how all that kind of works together. And sure enough, the guy that doesn't show up to practice on time or, does, or cuts weights early, that's the same guy that's going to hurt the team. And, and I hope at the end of this podcast your listeners realize that I am all about the team and I'll always be about the team. And every little thing counts about the team. And, you know, we all want to win at the end of the day, and that's what allows us to succeed. But if you gave your best effort and everyone did all the little things right and you still didn't win, you really didn't lose that day. You just were unsuccessful on the scoreboard. And I'm a big believer in, in the little things that everything matters, the, the way you present yourself, first impressions, the way you look, the way you act. And, and that's going back to the recruiting part. That's one of the best things that I love to see is I love to see kids go through adversity and see how they handle adversity. That's what this game is. This game's all about adversity. This is a failure game. And that's the thing. I think kids play baseball because it's cool not realizing that the adversity they have to go is going to show their true character. They're, they have that old saying that, um, baseball doesn't build your character, it reveals your character. And I think what you go through on a daily basis and everything, and not just the actions on the field and the physical part, but it's all the other stuff that add up to it each and every day. And, and again, I can't, I can't speak about that enough, is that little thing, there isn't big things to me. There's a lot of little things that mean a lot more than any big thing out there. Do you think that part of the, doing the little things that a coach asks you to do is about building trust uh, within teammates, for example, if you have a rule that all the players need to be dressed in a particular way, and there's one player that this, that wants to constantly push it and wants to kind of dress like he wants to dress, I don't know what the just say you had a rule on your team that everybody had to wear their pants up, right? Everybody had to have the high pants with the the high socks, and and one particular player would show up to practice with long pants and say, well, coach, they're too long. I just I can't. I can't pull them up. I'll just, it'll look ridiculous. And just one player that wants to push that. Do you think that that creates a situation where other teammates would have a hard time 
I know this is maybe, maybe sounds maybe it's too much, but other team other teammates will look at that one particular teammate and have a hard time trusting him or or feeling like he's a part of the whole like what makes you better than everybody else that you can do things differently than than we're all asked to do it. Do you think that that can be a thing as well as just taking care of the little things and just building the trust among your teammates, or is that absolutely? absolutely. That's a powerful word right there that you said a few times. Trust. And within a family, within a team, within a relationship, within a workplace, trust is a huge word. And it's a, it's, it's a hard word to stand up to all the time. But I think the more you gain trust in people, not just your coaches, but your teammates, uh, the farther you're going to go. And I think when you assemble 35, a 35 man roster to say that all 35 guys are going to trust one another or either even like each other, that's kind of hard to, to imagine. But um, the more you can get on the trust side, the better you're going to be as a team. And I think that's one of the things as coaches, that's what a lot of kids, you know, when going back to playing time and all that, a lot of kids like to point the finger, oh, the coach must not like me. Is that The bottom line is at the end of the day, the, coach, the players make the lineups out. The coaches write the names on the lineup card, but the players are the ones that are making the lineup out on a daily basis by their actions of what they're doing. I don't mean by taking BP and hitting 10 over the, the fence or throwing 95 in the bullpen. That's not what I'm saying. It's the guys that are consistent on a daily basis of doing things right, of all the little things, showing up on time, not cutting your weights, not cutting sessions and weights, not cutting your sprint short, sprinting through line, running through the back hard. Those are the guys that are getting the name in the lineup on a daily basis. And all the other guys that aren't, maybe it's not always that they're not quite good enough. Maybe there's something that there's a kink in their armor that they're not doing on a daily basis to stand out. One of the best coaches that I ever coached under, a, a very, very successful head coach, um, used to say that was one of his favorite sayings was to say to kind of, mirror your words was to say that the players make I don't make the lineup the players make the lineup like looking at the team you'd say you guys write the lineup I don't write the lineup based on what you just said their their actions and their performance it's not you know a lot of times in the fall you'll think boy we got a traffic jam at this position and how are we going to you know uh, how are we going to decide who plays here but it's, it's usually a good problem in the fall but by the spring things a lot of times will sort themselves out because yeah one of the players will either take himself out of the running by things that he does, or another player will catapult himself uh, in front of the other players by things that he does do that are sort of above and beyond what the other guys are doing. So that's a really interesting concept. Is that something you talk about with your team as well? I mean, do you, you, you tell them that, like, is that your message to them? And if, if that is your message, is that your message so that you, you sort of set expectations for them and, and what what you expect and, and basically if you want to play in the spring this is what's going to have to happen yeah and, and I'll, I'll, I'll go a little farther on that Jeff is that that's why I think you know a lot of kids when they're making their decisions to go places they sometimes will choose a place that maybe the competition isn't going to be as fierce so they get an opportunity to play quicker but I think competition actually brings the best out of you it actually holds you more accountable to do more things right on a daily basis. I'll tell a story. I won't tell the name. But we had a situation like that at Northridge last year. We had a position that was deep and had uh, two very talented players at a premier spot. And both players were playing to the highest of their ability. And we were getting the best out of both players. Well, then, unfortunately, one of the players got injured and didn't get to start our season. 
for the first 15 games that we played before we were canceled. And the guy who had won the position ended up not playing as well as he did when he was in that fierce competition going through the fall because he let up a little bit because his competition had fallen by the wayside. So I think competition is always going to hold an athlete more accountable. You can look and say, well, gosh, how's this going to sort itself out? But sometimes it'll tell the story for you. And sometimes people will rise to the occasion of the competition, and sometimes people will falter to the competition just because it gets, the adversity gets to them too much. So I think you can find a lot of times who your true champion is out of that mix by having a fierce competition. I think we have the luxury of having that now in our second year. Going into our second year in North is we've got depth at every position. So I believe the cream will rise to the top when it's all said and done because the competition is going to be so fierce, unlike it was maybe in year one for us. With that in mind and just knowing what your players are having to do right now, uh, to kind of catch people up that are listening to this, because a lot of colleges are handling things differently in the fall of 2020. Uh, your players are not at home. No, they're not on campus right now. Your players are at home. They are having to prepare basically on their own. I mean, you, of course, your staff is laying out a plan for them, but, but they're having to do things on their own. And if they're going to get better, it's going to happen by their own volition as opposed to a coach uh, kind of being the, the motor behind it. Uh, but you mentioned, I mean, you said earlier that you like to see how, how players handle adversity, and you think that baseball revere, reveals the character of a player uh, over time. And certainly your players are going through some adversity right now because they're at a disadvantage compared to a lot of other schools, if you choose to look at it that way, because a lot of other schools are practicing on campus in person right now, and your players are not. Um, what do you expect to see at the end of all this with your players you know eventually you will be on campus with your players and some of them will have gotten better and some of them probably will have gotten worse and some will be about the same spot you saw them before some will be in better shape physically some will be in worse shape physically um some guys will will will, will look like different players because they'll put on 15 or 20 pounds of muscle and other guys will look the same as they always have uh, what do you expect to learn from your own players through this time of, of adversity where they're forced to be at home working on their own for an extended period of time while they have some guidance from your staff, they also don't have someone there every day to push them. They're going to have to be their own motivator here. Well, I, I expect, to be honest with you, there's a couple of things I expect. I expect that it'll allow us as a coaching staff without seeing our guys physically to be able to make uh, quicker decisions because when we see our guys, we'll see right away who had the work ethic, and, and was able to fight through this time of maybe not having the ability to have a field to work out on, have a gym to go to, because the way California shows shut down. But on the other side of it also, I have no less of expectations of us being as good as we can be as I would have if we would have had fall practices. And as of right now, we're not having fall practices as of this moment. Um, we still are going to be as good as a team as we can be. Um, we're not going to use it as an excuse of why other programs got to have a fall workouts and we didn't, and that's why we got off to a slow start or maybe we didn't have as good a season. No, we, we will still maximize this team's ability to the, to the best we can um, of what we're doing. And what we're doing right now is it's all more too soon, and it's learning the game. It's uh, not doing it physically 
but it's talking through a lot of situations. Older guys are helping educate younger guys and, um, and what they've learned through their three years and what they could have wished they would have known as a freshman. So I think it's slowing the game down, and that word's used a lot. The game speeds up for people when they get to, from high school to the collegiate level. And I believe it's going to slow. The game's going to still speed up on guys. It, ha, it, it does every year. But I believe it's going to slow the game down because, see, we don't have results that we're dealing with right now. We're not worried about taking BP or ground balls or throwing bullpens or getting our workout in the bases and, and all that. We're learning the game. And I think that's one thing going back to everything we've talked about is that the game has become too much of the physical part and less of the mental part and learning the game and becoming a student of the game. And I believe our team will be smarter and better because of all the hours we're spending on a daily basis and a weekly basis of going over the game and learning situations and watching video and seeing stuff we're doing. So when we go out to the field, it'll be slower than it normally would and we'll be a better team for it. So we're, we're maximizing everything we can. It, it isn't a perfect world, but it's not a perfect world anywhere. But um, I hope at the end of the year we can sit back and tell the story. This is a team that didn't do anything together until January, and look what we were able to accomplish. That's the way I'm looking at it. There's no other other way for me to even to even look at it besides that. Right. You I mean, you've got a choice of how to look at it. So does your coaching staff and your players. And the more positive you are about it, the more positives you can find in this situation, the better off that the whole team is going to be. Um, how do you? Just kind of something that you that you sort of very very briefly touched on there, but I think that would be important to bring up or or um, valuable to talk about a little bit. You've been on so you've been a part of so many good teams, and I think that the leadership that develops on any particular team, you know, having having players that become leaders on any particular team, that can have a big influence on what the team ends up ends up doing and, and whether or not your players can sort of come together as a group uh, or whether there there are several cliques that don't necessarily mesh with one another. Uh, how, how big of a deal do you think it is that your players let – me, let me phrase that a little bit differently. On the best teams that you've been on, you've been a part of as a coach, does it matter how well the players mesh with each other Particularly, like off the field, I think a, a lot of people will will look at a team and think that the best teams, like they're also they're good friends off the field. They hang out, they do things together. Uh, but other teams that I'm sure that you've been a part of and I've been a part of, the players don't necessarily love each other off the field. But is it is it enough to respect each other's work on the field? Like from what you've seen in the co- the teams that you've coached, it, does it matter how? the players view each other and, and their relationship off the field. Is that, does that translate onto the field? Or have you seen that, that that's not that big of a deal? What, what matters more is how they work together, how much they respect each other on the field, and that's going to be enough to carry a team you know, to, to, to achieve what you think they can or, or even more than that. I think relationships and friendships are important but not as much as the respect when they get on the field together. Um, as you know, um, everyone's wired a little differently and not in when you have a team of 35 players, I don't think you're going to see eye to eye with everyone. It's no different than a family. You may have brothers and sisters and you love them all, but you don't love them all the same. And you maybe don't get along with one more than the other. 
but when you come under the same roof, you become, you're still a family and you're, you're pushing all to, for one common goal. I think it's the same thing as the team. You're not going to maybe have the same um, likes of everyone on the team. You may not get along with everyone on the team off the field, but when you're on the field, you're going to have a mutual respect and you're in one for one common goal. So, yeah, I've seen that more and more. Um, uh, I think leadership is a, is a powerful word that is, it's harder nowadays than ever before. As a coach, I would love to be the orchestrator with my staff of what the rules are and how we're going to go about things in the scheme. But I would love to have a team that is a player-led team that holds each other accountable. Because at the end of the day, Jeff, I don't know what's going on every single minute of the day with our players. I don't know what's going on in the, in the apartment or the dorm. I don't know what's going on every day in the weight room, who's cutting corners. I don't know what's going on in the right field corner when they're working on PFP stuff or working on their drive mechanics. But I think the players all do. That's the one thing I think players are geniuses. They know everything that's going on within the team. And the more players, and it's not a cool thing to be anymore. It's not a cool thing to hold players accountable. If you're, if you're a player yourself, that's not the cool thing to do these days. But I think the better, the more you have guys hold guys accountable, the better you're going to be as a team. I had, we talked the other day and we let our players talk a lot on the Zoom. We, we don't want it just to be all the, all the coaches talking all the time. We want our players to learn from each other because I think a lot of times they pick up more from when their players are speaking than the coaches. And I heard, I had one of our players say, who's a, who's, um, uh, in his last year as a pitcher, and he made the comment, he said, if you're not passionate about everything you do on the field, then it's probably not best to be around me very much. And I thought that was very proper. He didn't say it in a demeaning way. He's a very passionate guy, what he does on a daily basis on the field. He's one of our leaders. And it was, it, for me, it, it carried a lot of weight. If you're not going to be passionate about being out on the field, because the opportunity, we take for granted that opportunity. Well, we we got to go to practice today. There are a lot worse things in this world than you what you can be doing than going to a practice with 34 other teammates and with a common goal in mind. And I love his words with that. If you're not passionate, then I really don't want to be around you very much. And I think that's a great thing. That's what you need. You need this game where there's not enough players that are passionate to play. They, we, we talk a lot about the why. Why are you playing? Is it because someone wants you to be playing? Is it because it looks cool to play? You've got to have a why why you're coaching. And I know I have a why why I'm or why you're playing. I know I have a why why I'm coaching. I mean, I want to make people better. I want to bring people together. I want to have one common goal, and I want to pe- see people succeed. Again, I'll be judged by the scoreboard, by people on the outside, but I want to be judged by what I'm doing to help people become better people and succeed in baseball along the way. One or two more questions, Coach, and then we can wrap this up. But just a, a long, just to kind of finish this part of the conversation, um, I, I think that a, a difficult question in today's baseball, the way that the, the, the game is played now and the way that players interact with each other and the way that a lot of players play together, play, players from different teams play together in summer ball and they're kind of friends, like, uh, and, and guys are afraid to say things to their teammates sometimes. Um, they're afraid to hold each other accountable, as you as you just said, because they. It's just it's an uncomfortable thing to do for a lot of players. How do you, a guy that's been around the game for for a very long time and had again an incredible amount of success, which is why I was so excited for this podcast. How do you define 
a good teammate? What are the characteristics of a good teammate? I could probably sum that up in one word, selfless. Um, just being selfless. Um, uh, work ethic. But I think selfless kind of covers it all. I mean, it isn't about them. It's about helping their teammates get better, along with them getting better, too. But, um, uh, you know, selfless could go to how you're taking it here at bat. Are you thinking about your numbers, or are you thinking about taking it at bat for the team? Are you trying to make a pitch to strike a guy out, or are you trying to make a pitch to lower your, your pitch count total over the course of the game? It's just that selfless mindset that uh, that um, that the player needs to have. And, and guys have to be taught that to some extent. And, and sometimes it's hard to be taught that. It's hard to be taught how to be selfless because so much of, your, of us have been brought up to be selfish, that it's about us. And it's, um, you know, I think we... We live in a, uh, a generation now, a society now that, uh, you know, I know when I grew up, and I'm much older, I'm in my mid-50s, that uh, when we got in a car, um, I just sat in the back seat. I don't even know if I wore a seatbelt, to be honest with you. And um, it's like we've put, we've put kids in a bubble now, and it's all for the right reasons. It's all for the right reasons. But it makes them feel like they're more important than everything else. And so as a coach... You've got to be able to find a lot of selfless guys that are going to give that the team always comes first. And I know there's that old that old cliche, there's no I in team, and we've used that before. But team carries a lot of weight, and nobody realizes that much more is accomplished through many others involved than just you. And that's a hard thing to teach guys, and um, those are the guys you want to find. But selfless is the word that I would In your estimation, do do good? How do good teammates interact with each other? Um, so, for example, if that, that player that you just mentioned that, that said to his other teammates that if you're not going to be passionate about what you're doing in the field, then it's better that you're not around me. How how do good teammates interact with one another, particularly in a situation where a teammate realizes that another teammate is not giving something his best effort? Because I think, and I'm asking this question, it might be a difficult one, but I'm asking this question because I think that, and I don't know if it was any different, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, but players now I think have a hard time calling a teammate out for not doing the best they can. Everybody, the guys want to be friends with each other. Guys want to, you know, they want their friend to, to like their Instagram post that they're going to post after the game. They're more worried about that than they are uh, of trying to create the atmosphere that you need to be able to win whatever you're trying to win, the state championship, your conference championship, whatever it is. How does how do good teammates interact with each other from your experience? I think without being cutting or demeaning, it's just being truthful. Being truthful, and you've heard the old saying, the truth hurts sometimes. And it's supposed, it should hurt because it, it is it should be a little painful because someone's telling you something you need to get better at. And I think just being truthful, and I, I know my, uh, myself and my coaching staff, try to do as good as a job as possible and being very truthful with our guys and upfront with our guys and there's no hidden agenda and if a guy needs to get better in a certain area we're going to tell them that and if we're not trying to cut them down that they're not good we all know everyone has their shortcomings somewhere but just being truthful with them and honest with them and sometimes that that and it's how it's received too and it's how it's received by the person that has to take it on but I I think that's the best advice I can give to someone, a teammate, that 
have is that when they see someone maybe cutting themselves off in weight, maybe not run the ball out hard, and if someone didn't see it or cheating themselves some way, I think the mindset of today's athlete is, well, that's okay because that means I get to pass them up. But in the end, if he's your teammate, that's going to come back to haunt you. And we go back to that word we used at the start of this podcast, the game knows. The game knows. And somewhere along the line, the game's going to find that guy. If he's on the team, somewhere he'll contribute or try to contribute to the team, and the game's going to punish him at that moment. And it's amazing, and you know being a baseball guy yourself, you watch major league games, you watch a college game. I was at my son's uh, game the other day, and he hadn't played third in a couple years. And the, the coach put him at third to, to showcase his ability. What do you think the first two balls were hit in that next inning? Ball finds you, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's where the game knows. The game's going to find you. And I'm not saying my son was cheating himself, but the game's going to find you. Okay, you haven't played this position. Let's see how you react to this. That automatic adversity. So I think just being truthful because, uh, again, like I said, players sometimes, they get selfish. Well, that's not going to affect me. That's only hurting him. But in the end, it's hurting your team. So it's better to come out and say, hey, I saw you only did eight reps. We're supposed to be doing the strength coach wants to do ten. That's, that's being truthful. Because in the end, that's going to help you as a team. It might not help you personally, but it's going to help the team, which is always the first thing that's the most important. This has been great, really great stuff. This is Dave Serrano, everybody. He's the head coach at Cal State Northridge. He has uh, one of the best resumes you'll find. We didn't even get to talk about some of the guys that you've coached under Augie Garrido, George Horton, other guys you've coached alongside. Uh, maybe we'll have to have a second podcast. There's probably enough. You've got enough stuff going on in your head and, and enough on your resume to probably have four or five podcasts here. But I, I feel very blessed to have had you on today, Coach Serrano. And I, I just want to thank you for all the time and uh, everything you share with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me on, and, and I would love, and I'd be honored to be able to do this again with you. And, and I love talking baseball with baseball people, and um, I really enjoyed myself today. So thank you for for um, having me on this.